0: The theme of our study through John, um, this study that we're calling Undeniable, um, that Jesus um, is um, the Word of God made flesh. He is the favor from God that we have always longed for and desired. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. He is the one who says, come and see, and, and um, you will find all that you need. Uh, we learned last week that He is the new wine. He is the, uh, the, the source of, of, et- of change, of revitalization, of resurrection. Um, and tonight, we're going to talk about another um, kind of uh, a, a way of identifying or, or describing or a, a, a single word that really captures who Jesus is um, and, and, and in terms of uh, what he does for us and, and how he connects us or brings us to God. And, and that word is platform. Uh, platform is a pretty sterile word. It might not sound really biblical or really theological, um, but it's a word that I use a lot. Um, it's just a word I kind of gravitated, for, uh, gra- gravitated towards a few years ago, um, and, and it became uh, kind of Uh, 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 a a launching point um, uh, for my preaching and my teaching is something that I see all over the Bible. Um, This idea that Jesus is a platform and that that God wants to build a platform for us uh, that we can always um, find our footing on, that we always can find our um, security in and on and, and, uh, you know, the old hymn, The Solid Rock that we sang this morning. Um, That's what the rock means, right? The cornerstone, the foundation, a firm foundation. And I think um, kind of a, a word that kind of captures all those things and, and it's pretty broad is the word platform and John introduces Jesus as the platform um, that uh, uh, brings us to God, that we can stand on and see God, meet God, and communicate to and fellowship with God. And and in our text tonight, um, we're going to see kind of how John uh, further sends this message. Um, This is a a, a kind of a text that is easy to skip over. It doesn't really have a lot um, as tradition. uh, John's a very rich gospel. There's most chapters are full with several messages that you can pull from just a few texts. This is one that um, uh, doesn't. Uh, doesn't lend itself as some of the other more famous uh, passages in John, but I want to spend tonight talking about um, how I believe this kind of describes Jesus as and sets Jesus up as this platform um, that, uh, that, that brings us to God and that, that, that we can stand before God um, on. So let's go ahead and read John 2, uh, verse 13 through 22, um, and this will be our, our text for tonight. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords and drove them out, um, all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, "'Take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise or house of trade.'" Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It was taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he was, had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to the, said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Um, again, God has always been interested in God has always been interested in giving people a platform, a stepping stone, a ladder, building a scaffold, if you will, uh, for people that are far from him to find him. That has been God's motive from the very beginning. And of course, he set up humanity in a pretty sweet scenario um, because they were uh, he, he planted them, literally. He placed Adam and Eve or built a garden around them. It didn't just place them in the garden. He placed them on the earth and then built a garden or grew a garden around them that would be this safe and, and awesome environment where they would always have full and complete fellowship with him. But of course, sin um, uh, brought uh, that to an end. And, and when things went awry, God was still driven by this desire to dwell with and to meet with us. If you, if you were to ask me, one of the major tenets of the Bible, you know, what are, what are, if there's three or four main themes that you find throughout the Scripture, from the very beginning, from the earliest uh, pages in Genesis, God has desired to dwell with people. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, number one, God wants to dwell with you. He wants to be in a relationship with you, and He wants you to know that He is just a, uh, a prayer away. He is just a, you know, a, a, a notion away. He is no, he's not far from you. Um, he is not uh, difficult. or or impossible for you to discover or find or meet with. He is always near. Now, there are things that get in between you and God. There are plenty of things that can create a partition or create a separation between you and God. There are things we can do that can separate us from God. But God, in His heart of hearts, wants to dwell with you. There is nothing in the heart of God that does not want to be in a relationship with you. There is nothing about you that God does not want to, that God is so against that He is not um, more so for uh, That he's against more than he wants to be in a relationship with you and that's something we need to establish and we need to know because if you know um, above and beyond above and and all all everything that God wants to be with you that God desires you he loves you Uh, I think a lot of times we think um, we, we say that God loves us but we don't really know if he likes us um, and you kind of get what I'm saying from there. God wants to be in a relationship with you. He likes you. He loves you. He wants to dwell with you. And that has been his heart of heart from the beginning. And, and this is a theme that was established early on in the book of Genesis, in the narrative of, of patriarchs. When God reached out to Abraham, He told Abraham that He was going to make a great nation through him. And why was God going to make, why was it important that God was going to make a nation through Abraham? Because God, as the world understood faith and religion and the gods, um, each god had a nation. Each The gods had nations that warred with each other. So God wanted to carve out a specific people, a specific nation that could be pointed to as having a single god that He wanted to reveal through, to the world through that single nation that he was the only God. So God established a nation or would establish a nation through Abraham, and his whole point of that was to say, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation from you, and I'm going to bring favor and blessing to the whole world through you. I'm going to extend the platform. I'm going to start small. going to start with just you and your group, your tribe. It's going to get bigger. We're going to make a nation. We're going to establish the boundaries, but eventually this is going to widen farther and farther, deeper and wider, and it's going to be a platform that everybody on the face of the earth is going to be able to to stand upon and rest upon and have the confidence that God is that the God of the Jews is their God as well. So uh, business really got serious for Abraham with um, his grandson. Um, this this promised Abraham through Jacob. Um, and Jacob was the one, uh, between I, Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the one who was going to kind of be, uh, the, the, was going to get the ball rolling for this nation and this, this promise that God made to Abraham. But of course Jacob fumbled this surefire plan that God had set up and was left running from home in fear for his life. And it was into this narrative that we're going to step into, uh, just kind of jump into the, the midstream. Jacob uh, was running away from home and it's in that story that God speaks to what he wanted to do through Jacob and God gives us a preview Um, of what he would eventually do through Jesus, what he would eventually do through the the church, God gives Jacob, and he begins to tease out what we have read about um, in the New Testament, what we read about and know about through Jesus. Um, And and, and Jacob's story is really the beginning of this wonderful story of God building a platform, establishing a platform, and and of course the, the temple that was built by the ancient Jews was just a preview of that Of that platform. And of course, Jesus is the full and the final version of that. But I want to show you how all this kind of was teased out way, way back in the story of Jacob. Genesis chapter 28, it says that Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Now in Hebrew the the phrase a certain place uh, just means a random rest stop. A place that he just stopped to rest his head. Um, But this certain place would serve as a life-changing location for Jacob. A place that Jacob would years from then uh, travel back to and would point to as the place that he learned um, about God and, and and as the platform that he always could, could, could kind of land on and as the foundation for his faith going forward. And, and the story goes that Jacob took one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And that stone would become a shrine to the ancient Jews. And generations after this people would return to this place that Jacob would call Beth El, the house of God. This stone, this pillar that Jacob uh, had established, would remind the Jews that God had established a platform, God 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 had established a dwelling place um, for people to find him from and reach him from. And it says that Jacob saw a vision, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. So Jacob sees from this place that he rested his head, he sees a ladder, uh, literally more like an escalator. He sees angels descending and ascending um, as if this was going to be a touch point that God would communicate to Jacob and to the Jews and eventually to Israel that this proto-temple, this Proto House of God that God was going to show that Jacob uh, showed Jacob that this was a place to meet him, a place to dwell with him, and a preview of what would come in the New Testament. Scripture says that Jacob awoke from this sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And the reason he didn't know it, because it looked ordinary. It seemed ordinary. It was just an average rest stop along the side of the road that he, you know, brought some rocks together and made a place to lay his head, right? This was not a a spiritual place. It wasn't a holy place. It was just a random certain place. And it was at this place that Jacob learned that God is building a platform for people. And Jacob says that he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And the house of God in Hebrew is Beth El. Beth means house. El, El is short for God. So Jacob called this place the house of God, Beth El. This is where God dwells. This was, a, again, a preview of what God would tease out through the temple. And, of course, Jesus shows up in the book of John, and Jesus said, John tells us in John 1 that Jesus set um, up, up a tent among us. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. So Jesus uh, kind of calls back to this Old Testament idea of the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, the house of God, and Jesus set up him set up uh, in, on this earth, God made flesh, full of grace and truth, and then he goes on to tell us that Jesus was the Lamb of God, um, where the sin would be washed away, and of course, all these words, this language was, con- was drawing people or was connecting people to this idea of a temple, and, and as Jesus began to talk about dwelling among us, and as Jesus began to talk about being the Lamb of God, people began to think, well, Jesus, we already have a temple. We already have a dwelling place. We already have a platform. So what are you trying to say about what we already have? Of course, Jesus told Nathanael at the end of John 1 that Jacob's vision would be fulfilled, as in it had not been fulfilled yet in the temple that they currently knew and that they pointed to and that they rested in and they, that they, they met in. The temple that they had was not the fulfillment of that vision, but there was something better coming, some a better way coming. And Jesus, of course, was that and is that better way. The Jewish temple was just the beginning of God's intent to meet with people. Jesus though is the full and final realization of this. And John has been teasing this out. And Jesus finally arrived at the temple in John 2. And almost, if you've been paying attention, it's like this has been building to this. Because again, last week in John 2 um, Jesus made that scene with the wine, right? And he took these bottles of purification, um, these jars of, of the purification water, and he poured them out, right? And he made wine out of that water as if to say "What you, the way you've been doing it and the way you've been taught in the religion of old, it has not gotten you there. You thought that was the way, but I've come to show you I am the way. I took what you had and I made it better. I fulfilled what you thought was the way. I brought it to its full and final realization. So all this has been building up to Jesus arriving at the temple And having this encounter where he seems to uh, disprove of the way they have been doing things, of the manner that they have been conducting worship and, and, and conducting their meetings with God and with one another. So uh, this is a similar story. You're probably familiar with this um, uh, based on the accounts that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, But this one, of course, took place much earlier on in the ministry of Jesus. You're probably more familiar with the encounter that takes place during the Passion Week, traditionally, um, after the triumphal entry on Sunday afternoon or Monday uh, morning. You're familiar, most of us are familiar, with the Passion Week encounter, where Jesus, just before he dies, um, he pretty much, says the same thing that he did in this account except his words are slightly different um, which we'll pay very close attention to. Um, In this one, of course, same season during the Passover, he comes to Jerusalem and he finds, uh, it comes into the temple and he finds that there is a booth set up in the courtyard of the temple where the elders and priests and and religious leaders are selling sacrifices. That they are selling lambs and goats and sheep and oxen um, and doves. They are selling the provisions that they would uh, the people would then go and sacrifice on the altar of course uh, most most historians tell us that the way this worked was That if you um, were to go to the temple and you brought your lamb or you brought your oxen or whatever you were bringing to sacrifice, um, the way way that kind of how crooked and how rigged the whole system was, um, you would bring your lamb and they would take it and they would examine it and they would say, oh, we're so sorry, we found a blemish on your lamb. And of course, they would put the blemish on the lamb. They would do something to make it look like it was not clean or was not pure, um, or they would just lie and say, hey, this lamb isn't pure, this lamb isn't clean. And then they would say, but we can sell you a better lamb. And of course, it was a, just kind of a, a, a con and crooked system, right? That you would bring your lamb that you bought or raised, and then they would say, hey, we've got a better one to sell you. And they would profit off the average person bringing their animals to um, sacrifice to the Lord. Um, now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says to these people that you have made my father's house a den of thieves or a den of robbers or a den of bandits. But here... He says, you have made my house, my father's house, a house of trade or a marketplace. Now, I want to talk about this. Because it's important that we kind of understand what this means. For years, this has been woefully interpreted to say that the church to, to simply say that this is just saying the church shouldn't sell stuff. Um, and again, this is the temple; this isn't the church, so that should be uh, that distinction should be made. But many people take this text and they say, "Well, this means the church shouldn't sell stuff." And even further, you know, uh, the church should only be used for worship services, and no other activity should be taking place around or on. I, I grew up in a church where people didn't believe that this was a big hot button issue. They even eat on the grounds. They would. People would just eat way down at the bottom of the hill. It was an awful, awful ordeal. People would really go to go to great extents to be very religious. Did not even know why they were doing it. Um, but eventually they got over that and they started eating in the basement again, which is why it was there for all I knew. But anyway, um, the, a lot of churches, you know, are real nervous about this and, the, and they wonder, hey, is this what this means? That is not what this means. Um, that is a very weak interpretation of this text, honestly. Uh, but none of the, those things, none of those things, simple things that churches do, that is not at all um, a threat or a damage to the integrity of the institution. Jesus is talking about something much more serious here, though, than just having a yard sale or eating uh, um, near the church. Um, There's a very weak, again, Jesus is accusing the Jews of doing something um, as to change the identity of the temple into something far from what it was meant to be. And again, remember that the temple was meant to be and it was built to be a dwelling place for God among his people. It was built to be a platform to seek, um, a platform to seek, a platform to search, a platform to reach, a platform to meet with God, a place where anyone, anyone, anyone could enter freely and find hope and find relief and find salvation. Now, even with Judaism only uh, being a preview, not the full feature, the temple still served as this platform for all to come into and find God to establish a relationship. Um, but what the Jews had done, they had hidden God behind a paywall. They had said to the people that, listen, if you're going to meet with our God, you've got to pay our price. You've got to play by our rules. And this was so subtle. They didn't maliciously do this. I don't think they had a meeting one day where they're like, listen, we got to profit off of this, or we got to make sure that people know this is ours, and they can't just come in here and do what they want to. We want to make sure that people know we're the, we're the religious people, and if you really want to get to God, you got to come through us. And I, I don't think it was a malicious thing uh, or a malicious intent, but it's the eventual outcome of, of their control over the religious system um, because they control the salvation economy, if you will. And if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to meet their God, you had to play by their rules and you had to pay their price. Now, they did this in the name of protecting or defending or keeping pure their faith. But this is more than just about money changers. This is about how they had walled God off from people and how they had walled people off from God and turned people away from God. And this is why, this is so important that the church have these conversations. Because, because, the drift of all religion, the drift of all religion, the drift of all insiders is to lose sight of those that aren't in and to lose sight of those who have not came the way we have. And the drift of all religion is to begin to wall people off. And it's so subtle. And the Jews did not mean to do this, but they did it. This is something Jesus ran into and went out of his way to expose about religion of his day over and over and over again. And this isn't to say, again, this isn't to say those of his age or any age were doing so maliciously. It's just the drift Of religion, And if it happened to them, it can happen to us. If it happened to them, it's explainable why it could happen to any and has happened to any and every generation. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, this is an issue the church faces as well. And isn't it true the church has faced the same sort of resistible issues for years? It's true, isn't it? The church has always ran up against this issue um, of, of so subtly separating people from the God that we feel like we're the defenders or protectors or kind of, uh, you know, on the market on, and, and and the reality is, what has proven or what was proven to be and meant to be irresistible has indeed become resistible in some ways, not because God changed, not because Jesus' message changed. But Jesus himself was proven to be irresistible and all throughout the Gospels, all throughout Acts, it is clear that Jesus is irresistible if you just don't get anything in his way. Go back to the message a few weeks ago. Come and see. They came and they saw, right? But why is it that slowly and surely over time, as it was with the Jewish religion, that the church itself has suffered this same demise, this same plight, where we deal with this resistible front between us and the world. Why has this happened? Why does this happen? And, and how do you go from the gospel and acts to anything less? Now, and again, I don't mean to belittle anyone's uh, uh, ideas or, or genuine um, thoughts or, 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 or you know, understanding. The most common thing that people say is, well, Justin, 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 we're just living in the last days, Right? The the reason why it's resistible in our day, in our world, is we're living in the last days. And this is something that's come up a lot in our study in John. And I call nonsense to that. And I've learned, I used to be, oh, maybe that's the truth. But I've learned that that is not acceptable. That is not an acceptable answer. And you know why? Because Jesus... Saw into the future. He saw how it would be so easy for us to use that or pull that card. Jesus saw into the future of this battle between resistible and irresistible in the walls that we would build. And Jesus said this at the end of Matthew 28, at the Great Commission. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, don't, 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 don't use that excuse. Last days. I will be with you even in those days. And then, on opening day of the church, on opening day, day one, Peter in his sermon, for no other reason but I think to speak to our generation, Peter in his sermon quotes an even older sermon from Joel, the prophet Joel, and here's what Peter says on opening day about the endurance and the prolonged power that the church and his message should have. Peter said this, In the last days, as in it wasn't that day because it was the first day, so it wasn't talking about his generation, it was talking about somebody else's generation. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and it shall come to pass that everyone in the last days who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what is Peter trying to build into that opening day? Listen, y'all, if you do it the way we do it, and you always do it the way we do it, you'll never have any issues reaching people. Now, I'm, I, I, for one, as a preacher, maybe not in the last days, I don't know. I for one am very glad if that's in there, because two thousand years after this, I am so glad that Peter thought of me when he preached that first sermon, because that's encouraging to me as a preacher. That Peter would say to me, "Listen, listen, Justin, don't worry, because if you do it the way we did it, you'll continue to reach people, and you'll continue, and you have no reason to not continue to reach people." But it happens when anything becomes more important. The reason why this happens, the reason why resistible or irresistible becomes resistible is when anything becomes more important than our mission. Now, that seems like a simple and common answer, but when anything becomes more important than the Great Commission. Now, there are three pillars to the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Jesus says, go into all the world or all the nations and make disciples. Make disciples is the the verb there. The Greek word literally says make disciples and comma, here's the three things that you should do to make disciples. And he tells them they should go, they should baptize, and they should teach. So if you want to make disciples go, be on mission, you should uh, baptize as in people should be responding and people should be joining and you should be teaching those people and the people that you've had and the people that you gain you should teach those people. So the Great Commission has three pillars to it. It's about going, gaining and growing. Going, as in we need to be going to reach people because you're not going to reach people if you don't go to people, right? Gaining as in people are getting saved, people are being baptized the church is gaining members Growing as in, we're growing in grace and knowledge. You're growing in Christ. You're growing as a Christian. Because what we have to offer, who we have to offer, is worth going for, worth, and, and by all means, will produce gain and demands personal growth. So if Jesus isn't the problem, we have to ask ourselves, and every generation has to ask itself, what are we missing? And, and simply, we can go down the list. And the first, the first and last one are easy to answer. Are we going and are we teaching? Are we going? And now, if we're not going, if we're not intentionally reaching or, going, or you know, going out into the world with the attitude of, I'm going to reach people for Jesus, if you're not going, then there's no reason to wonder why, because that's the answer. If we're not teaching the Bible and teaching the scriptures, then there's no reason to go any farther, because if we're not doing that, then there's no hope for us at all. But if we're going and we're teaching, well, that addresses the first and last points, but not really the second. Because if we're going and we're teaching, then why then aren't we gaining? Why don't we gain members? Why aren't people being reached and retained and redeemed and revived and resurrected as they were in Jesus' day, as they have throughout history? What is the issue? I think we can learn a lot from the New Testament church because this is not a new problem for our generation. The first generation of church, of Christians, dealt with it as well. Now, in Acts, there was no shortage of gain. The church was growing and exceeding expectations. Every few pages you turn, thousands of more have been saved. But this happened at the expense of a lot of older Jewish ideas and a lot of older Jewish traditions, a lot of older Jewish beliefs. Um, And the reason we know this was conflicting to the Jewish people is because of how this kind of, how one of the arcs closes in Acts 14. When they arrived and gathered the church together in Antioch, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So Paul comes back from his first mission trip uh, from Iconium and Derby and, and, and those areas in uh, Turkey um, and, and, and ancient Greece, and he comes back to Antioch and he says, guys, I know we only really intended on reaching Jews, but guys, I, I, I stretched my uh, you know my comfort zone. I went out of my comfort zone. I started sharing the gospel to people who'd never even heard of Moses before. I, I started talking about Jesus to people that didn't know what the Old Testament was and Didn't know what Moses or all those guys were, and I just started talking about Jesus and how God became a man and how that was enough for people to to kind of connect with. I just started talking about Jesus, and people started believing, and I realized I don't really have to brief them on the entire Old Testament. I don't have to convert them to be Jews first and then Christians. They can just become Christians because Jesus is irresistible. And Paul's like, Man, I'm a Jewish scholar, I'm a Pharisee, I'm an elite of the elite. I can quote the Old Testament front and back. But I decided that stuff was getting in the way. The, the, the things I was putting on people was not helping them. So I just started preaching Jesus. And man, it changed their lives. Paul, the man that should have never made that decision to, to move away from his old ways, did and, 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 and was okay with it. But there were some. <laughs> there were a lot of people that weren't okay with that. So back at Jerusalem, word got, round, word got uh, there that some Gentiles were being saved. Some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Now, when it says they came down, it does not, it, they were going north, but they, Judea is always referred to as on a mountain. So when they left Judea, they were always going down. So they were going north, but they were going down. So that's, you've got to be careful when you read that. Like, where were they going? They were going north, but they went down. Anyway, they went to these churches that Paul had started and they said, oh, Paul, Paul told you that you were saved by faith. Oh, we're so sorry, but y'all aren't really saved. What? What, what, what? what? Sir, who are you? Where, where, where are you from? You're not saved because first you've got to know who Moses is and you've got to understand the Old Testament and there's these 600 commandments. What? 600 commandments? And, 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 and gentlemen, 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 there's this little thing called circumcision. And if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be a Jew and that means you've got to have surgery all of a sudden there were no men in the church anymore, right? Because the men were like, what? Because the Greeks were very prideful of their traditions which did not include circumcision. And and most of y'all are ladies. Y'all can laugh about that. Because it wouldn't have been a problem, right? The new membership class in the early church for this, for a few years was just women and children because the Jews were saying, hey, y'all men, if y'all want to join, you got to... Anyway, anyway, unless you are... thought y'all would think that was more funny. Maybe my humor is misplaced. Anyway, Unless you are circumcised, unless you become a Jew first, you can't be saved. And they're thinking, well, Paul told us that we can be saved and we have been saved, and you're telling us that we're not? And it goes on. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension in debate with them. And Paul's like, what are you doing? I spent the last several years of my life preaching to these people, and I taught them Jesus, and I introduced them to Jesus, and I introduced them to the New Testament imperatives of, of faith and, and hope and, 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 and love. And I've showed them the, the way to live in Christ, and the Spirit of God has changed their life. And you're telling them they're not saved because they don't know what you know based on your traditions and your Jewish history? What is wrong with y'all? Well, they don't sing the same psalms that we do. Psalms, right? Because that's what they sing. They don't know Hebrew. They don't even know what we know. Paul, 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 what are you doing bringing these smelly, pig-eating, uncircumcised Gentiles into our movement? Paul, Paul, we didn't hire you for this. I was like, you didn't hire me. Nobody else wanted to do it. <laughs> they didn't remember that. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were, going, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So there's a big meeting called. Because it gets back to headquarters and people, they start asking Peter, who who authorized Paul, Saul, the murderer? Who authorized this guy to be on mission? Did y'all sanction this? And they're looking around thinking, well, nobody wanted to go. And we honestly thought when Paul left, he would never come back. We didn't think he would reach people, let alone actually survive we didn't have any confidence in, in him doing anything for the kingdom of God. We just thought he would just get away because nobody wanted to be in Sunday school class with Paul because he was a murderer, and he used to hate Christians. So we just thought we would just send him away and never see him again. And, 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 and yeah, it's kind of weird that he's led thousands of Gentiles to Jesus, but you know, we didn't expect to deal with this. So the, the, the whole group is just up in arms. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So Paul says, let me just tell you all first off, I have seen thousands of Gentiles who don't know anything that we know about the Old Testament, and yet Jesus is enough to get them to God. And people were like, wow, that's awesome! And then there were some people in the room that looked around and said, y'all aren't supposed to be cheering about that. Particularly, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. Pharisees who used to be against Jesus, who realized that Jesus was the Messiah, that they killed him and they thought, well, that was a mistake. He is the Messiah. But they still held on to some of their Pharisee ways. And they rose up and they said, they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Hey guys, guys, we have to maintain our Jewishness. We can't say goodbye to Thousands of years of history in expense of reaching people? We must lay on them this, we must lay on their backs what was laid on our backs. Oh, you silly Gentiles, y'all haven't really been saved. You haven't really met Jesus. In fact, you need to pass through this other gate or through these other gates if you truly want to meet Jesus. I'm sorry to have misinformed you, or I'm sorry that Paul misinformed you, but let us tell you the full gospel. Can you imagine? being in this scene. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas and, and here's you know, Peter and all them. They're, they're sitting back and they're just kind of thinking, you know what? What do we do? What is this? Where is this going? So it says that the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, so this was a, this was the first big meeting of the church, and this was a big conflict, and people were just you know business meetings are never never the most fun y'all fun they're fun with y'all but they're never that fun, and they can get to they can lead to a bad place, and this was one of those all yelling at each other and insulting each other, and think about now we we know that Paul probably took Titus or Timothy at least, or excuse me, Paul probably took Titus with him. So here's a Gentile sitting in the meeting listening to people tell him that he actually isn't saved. Can you imagine the, the tension? Can you imagine you know, the drama and all these Jews that are discussing other people's fates? And Peter... Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And guys, y'all know how big of a deal that was because I had never set foot foot in a Gentile's house until Acts 10 whenever I went to see Cornelius. I had never been alone with a Gentile in my life. I had never spoke to one. I had never ate with one. I had never been in the same room with one all my life. I had avoided Gentiles. I hated them. I was racist against them. I judged them because they were different than me. They were not God's people, so I did not deal with them, and yet God called me, and I had to repent. I had to humble myself. God called me to go to the Gentiles. Y'all remember that? Yeah, we remember that, Peter. God called me, and God know, and God, who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. Peter says, guys, guys, remember, God saved them just like He had saved us, and, and they didn't know anything that I knew based on my Old Testament upbringing, and yet Jesus was enough for them. So guys, guys, we got to remember, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. All those years we tried to cleanse our heart by works and law and rituals and, and religion, and it was all by faith that the change would be made. Now therefore, why are you placing, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Guys, we couldn't get saved that way. And Jesus just wasn't an addition to the old; he was something brand new. And why are we trying to hold on to this stuff that doesn't work? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, "Guys, if we're if we if we're saved, it's by the same grace that they're saved. There's no distinction." All the assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then, after they finished, James, the brother of Jesus, who resisted Jesus, who rejected Jesus, who joined after Jesus rose from the dead, who was very Jewish and very proud of his Jewish heritage. James, who had become the pastor of that church in Jerusalem. James, the leader of the whole movement at this point. James says, brothers... Listen to me. And James, they're expecting to come down against Peter and to come down against Paul. James says, listen, y'all. Peter and Paul are right. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles. Who, are, who turn or are turning to God. We have to make it our mandate that we are not troubling anybody are not making it difficult on anybody that is seeking and finding and turning to God. So guys, whatever you do, preach Jesus pure and simple and don't let anything get in the way of that. Paul would go on from there and have a refreshed motivation and drive to reach people. A few chapters later, he would go as far as Athens... In Acts 17, Paul swallows any Jewish pride as he ascends a place called Mars Hill where there are idols everywhere. And Paul marches up on that hill and preaches to those Greeks without judging them for their idols. Of course, they had idols, they were Greeks. And He says to them, He says to them that He made from one man every nation of mankind to live all the, on all the face of the earth, including y'all, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place. So God puts you in a place and did not think that was a barrier to reach you, but it, based on your history, based on your background, He still believed He had the confidence that He could reach you through Jesus and Jesus alone. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. He is actually not far from each one of us. And that, that is what should drive us as a church. That we can present the gospel so simple and so pure. And that God, in fact, is not far from anybody. And that anyone with the simple gospel can find and feel and make their way towards Jesus. Do you believe that, church? Are we motivated to make this our highest passion? Are we facilitating this process and keeping front and center the very gospel that offers so much hope? Jesus was so serious about this. He comes on the scene in John and completely rattles his base. He cuts ties with his heritage and his religion. And he makes a point. If it's not leading people to me, it's probably standing in their way and it's in my way. He went through the temple with a bulldozer and said, all of this has got to go. You know the only way this gets offensive? You know the only way this gets offensive or touchy? When we let stuff build up. You know why this offended the Jews? Because they had let it be wrong and had gotten it wrong for so long. This offended the Jews because for so long they had walked in the opposite direction of God. If the church remained fresh and focused, there would never be any hurt feelings or sentimental resistance. The reason why the Jews resisted Jesus is because there were hundreds of years of going the other way. And when Jesus showed up, He, made, he hurt their feelings. He, he, he hurt their sentiment when He said this stuff's got to go. It's because we get off mission. It's because we prioritize things other than the gospel and the Great Commission that we ever have to have these kind of conversations and inevitably hurt people. The unchanging, everlasting gospel is too important to have anything compete with it. That includes me, you, trends, or tradition. That is something that that not every church. That is something that most churches have a hard time saying yes to. And usually by the time we say yes to it, it's too late. We don't hold on to anything just because it's always been that way. We don't chase after something just because it's the latest trend. We simply take seriously and sacredly our given task and mandate to go and gain and grow. To not let anything get in the way. They, heard, they responded to Jesus by saying the zeal for the house has eaten him up. Is that true about you? That you would do what Jesus did even if it offended your closest religious friends because you saw it getting in the way of Jesus? The Jewish religion didn't just demand that you play by their rules but they demanded that you pay, by their, pay their price as in they had put a price tag on salvation. This puts even further importance on giving, giving focus and an emphasis to the gospel of Jesus because the gospel tells us that salvation is free. And when we put the gospel behind our rules and behind our price... We're telling people the gospel isn't free. We're telling people that Jesus isn't their Savior. Jesus is the Lamb of God who washed away and took away our sin and the sin of the world. Salvation is already purchased. It's paid in full. But when we put things in place or in front of people in God, we're telling people that it's not. That something has to change about them. Something has has to change other than what God did to change them. There's more to this idea than putting a price tag on reaching God. We must also give emphasis to how the Scripture is complete. Jesus is not just the Lamb, He's the Word. And many will try to say, as, if, as they have since the Gnostic days, that they have a connection that you don't or most don't. But that's not true. And the good news, and, and what sings, and what really kind of echoes the fact that the Gospel is free and that Jesus and salvation are free for anybody... Is the, fact that the, at the, is the fact that the Scripture is complete and sufficient. That anybody can open the Word of God and have the revelation of God, the full revelation of God, right in front of them. You don't have to have a certain level of godliness to know what God says or know what God wants. It's open and written to everybody. You can trust that His Word is enough, rightly divided and led through the lens of Jesus. His Word is enough for you to hear from and learn from. Jesus goes on to to tell them that the t- why they had uh, to tell them that the temple was just the beginning that he was the full and final temple of god the dwelling place of god the temple was just the opening act the beginning he shifts the attention from the temple to himself and that's what this entire exchange has really been all about changing the foundation of our faith in theology and practice from the temple to jesus from the religious traditions to a relationship with god Theologically, we don't anchor our faith in a building, a service, or a ritual. That must be completed or repeated over and over again. We trust in Jesus because He did something once for all. Everything we do should communicate that Jesus is everything. He is the Word. He is our favor. He is the Lamb. He is the new wine. Come and see. Taste and see. Believe and receive. A, a word that we always come back to as Christians or in our teaching and our lessons that describes Jesus is this word finished or complete. But that doesn't suggest that he's the ending. It really suggests that he is the beginning. Because the idea that Jesus finished the work of God, he was the end of religion, yes, but he was just the beginning of a relationship with God. And he is all that you need to have a relationship with God. He is the complete measure of God's grace. So while there's a sense of finality in Jesus, there's also the promise and potential of a beginning. And that's why, practically speaking, that Jesus is not the finish line. He's the starting line. He's the entry point into a relationship with God. He does what religion can't do. He changes from the inside out. And it's not what we bring, but what we leave. We don't bring anything to God that gets us in. In fact, it's what we leave behind. It's what we say I'm letting go of that gets us in. Because we say, as the song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Whatever we've got in our hands, we lay it down, we let it go, because nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus brings us to God's favor and brings us into God's family. We don't earn Jesus, we receive Jesus by faith. This is what defines us as a church. And Jesus made it clear to the temple, if they wanted to be a part of his movement, if the Jewish religion wanted to become its full and final ideal version that God intended it to from the beginning, it would have to say goodbye to some things that were getting in the way of people and God. It would have to say goodbye to the things that were walling people off from God that were never a part of God's plan. Salvation was not for sale. Salvation was not, did not have a price tag on it. And there was nothing in between us and God that Jesus did not remove So this needs to be clear and present as a church, as we present the gospel, as we go, as we teach. The difference in seeing people saved is making sure that Jesus is given the full and ultimate spotlight because he's irresistible. I believe that. You believe that. That's why you got saved. And that's why he can save anybody and everybody if we keep him front and center.